Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Before we start, we've got a brilliant new digital publication to tell you about. Yes, the science of coronavirus is constantly changing and there's a huge amount of misinformation out there. To help cut through it all, we've put together a special digital-only issue of our Essential Guides series, all about coronavirus and COVID-19. In it, you'll find a selection of our best and most informative articles on the pandemic brought bang up to date. From where the virus came from, to how it spreads, how best to stop it, and an insight into the race for a vaccine, this Essential Guide brings you all you need to know about coronavirus right now. This digital issue is available to buy in the New Scientist app. Download it from the Apple App Store now. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in the world of science. I'm Valerie Jimison. I'm Creative Director of New Scientist Events. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. This week, we're joined by New Scientist editor Kat Delange, and we have a special guest, best-selling author and former New Scientist editor, Joe Marchant. Hi, Kat, and hi, Joe. Hello. On this week's show, we're hearing about new findings on the effect of the moon on our health. We're looking at the latest evidence on how coronavirus spreads between children. We examine how it might be possible to traverse a wormhole in space-time without dying. And we're going to analyse the claims made about a pig fitted with a brain-computer interface. But we start with a different and a super-controversial approach to fighting climate change. Yes, this is geoengineering. It's the idea to manipulate the entire planet directly to try and cool it down. Right, this isn't about stopping carbon emissions, which obviously we should be doing. It's about technological approaches like using giant sun shields to deflect sunlight and thereby kill the planet. Yeah, that's the main contender. That one's called solar radiation management or solar engineering. Um, And the best understood idea would be to put aerosols into the atmosphere, to inject them in the atmosphere, to effectively create a giant sunshade for the Earth. And I say the best understood, but it's still massively poorly understood. And we'd need to do a lot more research before we uh, ever attempted to do that on a big scale. Now, the idea has been around for a while, but why are we talking about geoengineering this week? Yeah, it's because we've got a big piece in the mag this week about uh, a different approach. So one of the big problems with solar radiation management is that even if it worked and cooled the planet, it doesn't do anything at all about all the carbon dioxide we've already put into the atmosphere. All of that just stays there. 
Mm, and the problem with that is that huge amounts of carbon dioxide from the burning of oil and coal and gas have been going into the oceans. They get dissolved into the sea and acidify it. And this is one of the main reasons that coral reefs around the world are in such trouble. Exactly. So there are other geoengineering options that try to address that problem. But I should say, of course, that these are not great options. None of them are great options because we shouldn't be in this mess. We should we should have gotten out of it by stopping burning fossil fuels. And we've known that for decades. That's that is by far the best thing to do. But given that we're not decreasing the amount of carbon dioxide we're putting into the atmosphere, um, a growing number of people are saying that we do need to look at other options because they, they say that we might well miss the target agreed in Paris, the ideal um, in Paris 2015 to stay at 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming above pre-industrial times. Now, some people say we're almost certain to miss that target. Um, and if we do, we really should be thinking about what else we can do. And, and an extreme geoengineering measure is one way out of it. So the other option is? The other option is that we try to directly reverse ocean acidity and remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And the idea here is that you use alkaline and silicate rocks ground up in vast amounts and basically dump it into the ocean. And when all that ground up rock is exposed to carbon dioxide in the water, it reacts to produce dissolved calcium and magnesium bicarbonates. And these are useful compounds for sea life. Uh, they get incorporated into the shells and skeletons of sea animals. And when they die, they, that, all that sinks to the bottom of the sea and is locked up forever. Hurrah! Yeah, it's very easy, easy fix. Um, but a conference on this that we report on suggested we'd need to extract 5 billion tonnes of rock each year, which is twice the quantity used in global cement production today. And we'd need to do, do that much to change the acidity of the ocean on the scale that we need. Which, apart from being ecologically challenging, to put it mildly, to get all that rock, presumably it would be really expensive as well. Yeah, and, that, and this is the main part of the story. Uh, it does look like there are some billionaires who are getting interested in geoengineering, it's always been one of the worries, but mainly we thought about it with respect to solar radiation management, because it wouldn't cost that much. If you're a billionaire. If you're a billionaire, to get a fleet of aircraft adapted to fly in the stratosphere and release particles of sulphur to act as a sunshield. But now our reporter Mark Harris has uncovered links between Silicon Valley billionaires and proposals or ideas to move forward with uh, ocean alkalinity enhancement, as it's called. And in the past, this kind of danger of a billionaire acting unilaterally as some sort of environmentally friendly Bond villain has been called Greenfinger. Uh, Joe, have you got any feelings about tech billionaires messing with the planet? Well, my gut feeling is I'm slightly horrified by it. It just feels like the super rich desperately trying to maintain the status quo when we know what we desperately need to do is live more sustainably. So I think if we are going to do something like this, it's going to affect the whole planet. It, there needs to be a much more democratic approach and a much more regulated approach. I do worry that this could go horribly wrong if done unilaterally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, in the US, uh, the Democrats um, have released a climate crisis action plan that has support for research on risks and, and how to governance uh, the whole area of geoengineering. So, yeah, as you say, we have to hope that that is the way that it goes, that we get a properly regulated approach, if we have to do this at all. That's our sci-fi alert. 
as you know, this is when we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. What is it this week, Rowan? Uh, This week, it's the news we've all been waiting for. It turns out that it may actually be possible to travel through a wormhole without dying. An actual wormhole. That's a tunnel through space-time between two black holes. Yay. So many questions here. So many questions. So, first of all, do we even know that wormholes exist? Well, you know, you're a physicist. Physicists think they exist. Uh, They're predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity. And uh, more precisely, they're predicted by a solution to his field equations. Okay, I do know about this. So the theory Mm. behind these kind of wormholes was developed by a physicist called Nathan Rosen and they're called Einstein-Rosen bridges or Einstein-Rosen wormholes in his honour. And you can visualise a wormhole as a tunnel that connects different regions of space-time. It might be a few metres apart or it could be billions of light years apart. They also might connect different points in time. Yeah, well, that's, that's somehow more spooky than connecting vast distances. Yeah, but the problem with them is that they either snap shut when something falls in or they're extremely small so that only photons can get through, which is not really what we want, is it? We want something a bit more exciting than that. And then they just disappear immediately. Yeah, that's that's always been the problem with them. And there's been a lot of work looking at the ways wormholes might be made more stable. I remember we did a story about uh, a kind of negative energy called Casimir energy that could theoretically delay the collapse of a wormhole long enough for you to send messages through it. Okay, so what's the latest? The latest is a couple of physicists have found another way to stop wormholes from collapsing. Fantastic! Yay! It just needs another dimension of space-time. Oh, so they've basically made up a new dimension to make the equations work. Yeah, basically, that's that's what they do, isn't it? That's what theoretical physicists do. Yeah, it's quite a common approach, isn't it? But um, And with this new dimension, the wormhole is stable enough for someone to travel through. Yeah, apparently so. Um, but there are a few problems. Uh, the first is that in order to be physically possible, uh, travelling through a wormhole to a distant location would have to take longer than flying there directly through space at the speed of light. Um, but time would pass differently for the person inside the wormhole. So from your point of view as a traveller, you'd zip through it quite quickly, but everyone on the outside would get old and die. Yeah, but you're going to end up millions of light years away anyway. Yeah, so it's not really a problem. So would you be travelling at the speed of light? You'd be travelling quite close to the speed of light, and that's the other issue with with travelling through wormholes. Um, It's not so much a problem that you travel that fast, but it means you mustn't bump into anything on the way. And if you hit a, a particle or a grain of dust or even a photon it would basically destroy you because the impact would be so energetic. So you would need to give that wormhole a good thorough clean before you travel through it, and then you'd have to block everything else from entering it, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, that's easy enough. Okay, well, I mean... (laughs) Okay, so that's great. We have a traversable wormhole at last. What's the sci-fi link? Well, uh, any number of sci-fi novels and movies have wormholes, but I'm going to have to repeat myself here from uh, a few months ago and go with Carl Sagan, because uh, we've mentioned his book Contact before. Yeah, and in Contact, the Ellie Arroway character played by Jodie Foster in the film, she goes through a wormhole from Earth to the star Vega, 25 light years away. Yeah, but the reason I, I wanted to mention it again is that when Carl Sagan was writing the novel... He, he got a bit stuck on it, basically, and he asked his, his friend Kip Thorne, who's a black hole physicist, for some advice about how wormholes might work. Um, and it inspired Kip Thorne to 
basically go away for years and with his uh, students work on how on ways to stabilize wormholes and how it might be possible for an advanced civilization to do this. I love this because it's, this is a real case of art feeding into the science here. Yeah, and it happened again years later when Kip Thorne um, advised on the movie Interstellar. There's a black hole in that film. And, and that led to new publications about what a black hole would actually look like. Time out. Time to remind you that there's a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers. Yeah, there's loads of premium content, videos, features, interviews and a huge archive of work going back years. Pod 20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your bargain. Now, last night there was a full moon and how's everyone feeling? Yeah, good. I'm feeling great, although I put that down to the coffee, to be honest. (laughs) Well, actually, I've had a migraine for the past 24 hours, so that did get me thinking whether the moon has anything to do with it. Uh, You've had a migraine. I wonder if, well, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, I ask about this because Joe has just written a piece for the magazine this week on the influence of the lunar cycles on our health. Joe, tell us how you got into this, because, you know, the idea that the moon directly influences life and health that's a lovely story, but we tend to think it's all like folk stories and fairy tales, right? Or, or is it? Yeah, well, there are lots of stories. I mean, we've all heard of um, werewolves at full moon, for example, and we see it in language as well. Um, we've got the, the Greek word for moon, mene, you find that in the word menstruation, or the Latin luna in lunatic. So there's all these stories about the moon affecting fertility, mental health. But scientists have tended to dismiss the idea, whether that's because of the fairy tales or just because the moon doesn't really seem to be, you know, particularly significant in our lives today. But actually now there's a sort of new wave of studies coming out suggesting that there could be some truth in them after all. Yes, I mean, the sun gets the glory, really, doesn't it? Because we've heard about chronobiology, and that's how the sun influences the circadian clocks in our bodies and in our cells. And that tells us when we need to feed and run and sleep and digest things. And all those rhythms are pegged to the rise and fall of the sun. Yeah, so the whole field of chronobiology has really been about the sun, about these daily rhythms, as you say, and it really took off in the 1960s and 70s. Um, for example, there was a whole series of studies carried out by a German physiologist called Jürgen Aschoff, where he dug a, an underground bunker that volunteers would go and live in for months at a time, cut off from all cues to the time of day outside. And they're like locked, total lockdown, basically. Yeah, a little bit like that. A lot of them were students cramming for exams. So apparently some of them didn't actually want to come out at the end of it. (laughs) But this showed that the body's uh, daily rhythms continue, um, even if you're not in contact with the sun at all. So that really helped to develop this idea of internal clocks um, in our cells that kind of, and we now know that there are lots and lots of clock genes that encode these proteins that sort of regulate each other in this steady daily pulse in our cells which is then entrained and the timing of it is sort of more precisely set then by cues from the sun so sunlight and temperature okay but but what about the moon what's the evidence that the moon has this influence as well yeah so traditionally a lot of biologists have studied this almost as if the moon doesn't exist but actually there's a lot of evidence now looking at 
um, all through nature of effects from the moon. So we know about um, aquatic species that um, spawn by releasing their eggs and sperm into the water, for example, like, like corals. They will use the phase of the moon to time mass spawnings to very tight time windows. So you get these huge mass spawning events. Uh, there's a lot of coastal creatures um, from crabs to midges to oysters that use the tides. They have a daily rhythm, but it's actually set by the moon and the tides rather than the sun. Um, but even on land, um, you've got whippoorwill chicks, for example. This is a kind of bird where the chicks will hatch at new moon. So then their highest sort of demand for food is going to come two weeks later at full moon when the parents have got moonlight that they can catch insects by. Uh, Serengeti wildebeest will time their conception to make sure that their calves are, are born safely ahead of the uh, species mass migration in the spring uh, even in plants as well there's a cactus that opens these huge flowers to attract bees only at full moon or the ephedra tree which produces this sap which glitters in the moonlight which will attract insects so we think about the sun but actually behind it the moon is also this kind of global coordinating uh, force for life okay and do we have any idea of how the effects are mediated in the body and in plants and in animals yeah, so this is quite early days on this research, but obviously there's the tidal effects for a lot of the um, sea creatures, but moonlight is really important as well. And there, are, what's the interesting thing that's been happening just in the last few years is the first genetic studies. So that's been happening a while for these daily rhythms. But in terms of the moon, um, these studies have mostly been done on um, marine species so far, things like um, corals, uh, rabbit fish, bristle worms. But they're showing that actually in these species, at least, there are hundreds of genes that are cycling with lunar phases. So there is a genetically determined lunar clock as well. These are genes involved in everything from metabolism to cell division. And also genes that were thought to be core components of the circadian clock are also following the phases of the moon. So um, what the researchers are saying is that actually, rather than having a sort of separate sun clock and moon clock it may just be that life's ancestral clock was tuned to the sun and the moon you know nature is a combination of solar and lunar cues so species wouldn't really differentiate between the two it's the sort of added signals from both of those two things together that has been coordinating life so that's a real kind of paradigm shift in how people are looking at these internal clocks and so what about in humans i mean i was wondering when you're talking about examples from nature how light pollution might be affecting this if the moon is so important and we know that there's so much light pollution especially in big cities yeah so the effect of the moon in humans has been particularly controversial i mean there are a lot of traditional beliefs about this and there were some studies a few decades ago that were claiming links between the phase of the moon and everything from violent events to menstrual cycles to births but then more recent bigger studies tend not to see an effect so some scientists are very skeptical some have said we shouldn't even be studying this anymore some have said that any lunar influence on human biology is is paranormal as one word was used to describe it in a study recently but actually others point out that well, we're not exposed to natural patterns of moonlight anymore so you wouldn't actually expect those effects to be showing up. So that might be one reason why uh, the effect has been lost in more recent trials. And also those genetic clocks that have been identified, we now see those in species from corals to to fish, you know, all across the animal kingdom. So they must date from very early in evolution. So it wouldn't actually be surprising if there was some sort of remnants of that in humans. 
There have been some recent studies um, looking at lunar phases and sleep, suggesting that there is an effect there. Um, some preliminary evidence that the moon can entrain menstrual cycles, after all. Um, and then a really interesting study that came out a couple of years ago looking at patients with bipolar disorder. So in these patients, they have sudden switches between high and low mood, and this can be triggered by changes in sleep. Um, and in this study, these patients tracked the timing of their sleep and their mood changes over years, and it turned out that the, the, the sleep patterns that were triggering the mood changes were in turn being driven by lunar cycles. Um, and what's really interesting about this is this was uh, tidal cycles to do with the position of the moon in the sky. So that's nothing to do with lunar phases. So that could not have been triggered by moonlight. So there's now quite a lot of interest of scientists scrambling to try and think, well, what could the mechanism be? Um, one possibility that's been suggested is that Perhaps these patients were somehow sensing magnetic changes because the position of the moon and sun in the sky can cause these magnetic little ripples in the Earth's magnetic field, creating a kind of daily signal. Um, so it's not really understood yet, but it's possible that perhaps there's something like that that's going on, that these magnetic signals from the moon are influencing those patients' biological clocks. Yeah, we had a story a few years ago about cows uh, lining up with Earth's magnetic field. So and and there's a bit more evidence as well that animal some animals can sense the magnetic field of the planet. So yeah, as you say, that might be the way that uh, people are influenced by the moon. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence now that. Um, all kinds of species can detect the Earth's magnetic field, particularly for navigation, um, by a variety of different mechanisms, even though these changes are really, really tiny. So fish, turtles, butterflies, birds, dogs, um, lots and lots of species. And so the question is, yeah, do people still have the, that magnetic sense? And so the, the, the bunker, the underground bunker that I mentioned earlier, where volunteers were going um, underground, uh, cut off from the sun and their daily rhythm still continued, they did lag slightly behind the sun when they were cut off from the sun. But the really interesting thing is that there was a second bunker where those people in that bunker were cut off from the sun, but they were also shielded from the Earth's magnetic field and their daily rhythms deteriorated even further. So that was some early evidence that perhaps the Earth's magnetic field is providing some kind of timing signal that's helping clocks. And there are some preliminary suggestions as well that there might be some kind of magnetic navigation sense in humans as well. But again, this is very controversial. We don't have a good mechanism for that yet. And so, Joe, you came across all this work when you're researching your new book, uh, Human Cosmos, A Secret History of the Stars. Uh, tell us about that quickly. Yeah, so this is about how the sun, moon and stars have shaped humanity. So I talk about um, their influence on our biology, as I described in that feature, but also our culture. So our view of the stars has shaped science and astronomy, as we know, but also our religion, politics, art, um, our ideas about everything from life and death to time and space. Um, so I tell that kind of deep history from the origins of our species and also talk about why I think you know, we desperately need not just a scientific understanding of the universe, although that's really important, but we also need to experience it directly for ourselves. We need that personal connection with the wider universe. And, you know, with light pollution and, and modern lifestyles, that's something that we're, we're losing at the moment and that I think we should fight for. And that's, that's just out the human cosmos. Uh, very timely, actually. It's the sort of thing people have been talking about a bit more recently with lockdown and getting back to nature and get, reconnecting with nature. Uh, but, you know, one thing that occurred to me, actually, is that are we able to, you know, you, you said in that bunker that they removed the magnetic field. Can we kind of replicate it? Because if we're, you know, living on the moon or on Mars, 
where they don't have a magnetic field, then that would cause all sorts of problems for people there, wouldn't it? Yeah, potentially. And and in that study with the bunkers, they did actually then artificially um, reinstate the magnetic field. And that also helped to reinstate the daily rhythms. So that was done quite a while ago, that study. But I think overall, the message is that, you know, the movements of the sun and the the moon, they're not just distant events, they are affecting our environment directly in lots of different ways. And and when we move into space, we're going to have to think about how do we replicate that. And that includes the magnetic fields as well as the patterns of sunlight. Now it's time for our regular COVID update. And this week, as children around the world go back to school, we're looking at what we know about safety and the virus. Yeah, I saw that in Wuhan. Uh, you know, that, of course, that's where the virus first took hold. Uh, Wuhan in China, 1.4 million children have gone back to school this week. But what's the evidence say about the safety of this cat? So our reporter Jess Hamsley has done a big uh, piece this week in in the mag about everything to do with with the safety of going back to school and it's a difficult issue. There's no complete answer, but on balance, it seems that it is safe enough to open schools, um, but there are specific ways to do it best. Two things we can say from the evidence we have so far is that firstly, younger pupils seem to spread the virus less than older children. Uh, So that's from studies tracking outbreaks in schools. And it looks like when that happens, it's normally adults bringing it into the the school and causing the outbreak. And when we say outbreak, I mean, it could be as as little as two people testing positive for coronavirus. And, And the other thing that we can say with some certainty is that most of the time, children don't seem to get very sick or die from coronavirus. Some do get symptoms of of COVID-19 and a very small number of children get a very serious reaction called multi-system inflammatory syndrome, but that is really very rare. We've asked this in the past, but do we know yet why children get less sick from it? It's a really good question and we're not entirely sure, but there are some ideas. So one possibility is that um, because children have had less exposure to other coronaviruses that we know circulate all the time and cause things like the common cold. So children will have had less exposure to this in the past. And so perhaps their immune response is less likely to have an overreaction called a cytokine storm, which we know is a big problem for adults who end up with severe uh, COVID-19. And what about why young children might be less likely to spread coronavirus? Yeah, no one actually knows for sure. Uh, There are a few ideas about this. Um, So one is that children are less likely to have severe symptoms, like we just said. So they're not spreading it as much through things like coughs and sneezes. Um, And also perhaps when they do cough and sneeze, it's not as vigorous as adults. I'm not sure I buy that, having been on the receiving end of a toddler's sneezes. um, quite gross but um the other thing is that it could be because you know small children are so low to the ground so maybe when they do spread the virus it is just falling to the ground before it spreads to other people those are just ideas uh, we don't really know <laughs> I, I love that uh, it'd be hilarious if it's as simple as that that they're as they're just low to the ground now what about test and trace you know do we have test and trace working properly don't we need it to be able to reopen schools safely Yeah, I mean, it's a massive issue and um, it's difficult because the tests that we have at the moment are are quite hard for kids to do. But there are people working on easier tests, um, like a spit test that children might be able to do much more easily in schools. But definitely, if we're going to have kids going back to school, we need to be able to test regularly and then isolate and and trace um, cases that do come up. 
And what about kids wearing masks? Because in some countries, like Scotland, for instance, secondary school pupils um, are wearing masks when they're in communal areas like corridors. What do we know about that? Yes, there's a lot of varying advice about that. Uh, The WHO says that children over 12 should wear masks in the same way that adults do, you know, especially if they they can't socially distance. Um, And then for children who are aged 6 to 11, it depends on whether they're able to wear one properly. And then the advice for under fives there is that we shouldn't bother with masks. Um, But that's not universal advice. So the American Academy of Pediatrics strongly recommends face coverings for kids age two and older. And then Public Health England says that under threes shouldn't wear them for health and safety reasons. So it's very confusing, a lot of conflicting advice. But I think, you know, if you think about very small children wearing masks, and they're going to be fiddling about with them and taking them off and putting them back on again, there is potential there that it could do more harm than good. Okay, next up, let's talk about pigs with telepathy. Yeah, this is one of Elon Musk's many companies. It's called Neuralink, and the aim is to create a brain-computer interface that he says will eventually allow us to become integrated with computers. Yeah, I think the drive behind this company of his is that he has this great fear. It's, uh, he has an existential fear of artificial intelligence becoming superior to human intelligence, and this is a way to keep ahead of it. By merging with them, yeah. I suppose if you if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, that's the idea. Um, so the latest is that last week, Elon Musk demonstrated a Neuralink brain implant for the first time. In a live pig. Yeah, in, in a pig. Uh, the company trotted out three pigs yeah. onto stage. Uh, um, the pigs were called Joyce, Gertrude and Dorothy. And now Joyce had no implant. Gertrude had a Neuralink implant that monitored neurons in her snout. And Dorothy, she had had an implant installed and then it was removed. Uh, and during the presentation, Musk displayed a screen showing live signals from Gertrude's Neuralink device as she rooted around in some hay. And the signals were produced when she touched her snout to food or onto the ground. Okay, so what is the device? I heard Elon Musk say that it's like a Fitbit in your skull. Is it really that that simple? Yeah, well, it, it resembles a coin with extremely thin wires coming from one side of it. Uh, and it's designed to be implanted in the skull with the wires embedded a few millimetres into the surface of the brain. Uh, and these wires can then detect when neurons are firing or potentially emit their own electrical signals to make the neurons fire themselves. Uh, Musk showed a video of the neurons responding to the electrodes. So the hope here is that eventually the devices will be able to both read and write neural signals. And this might help with medical problems that originate in the brain and spine, such as paralysis or neurodegenerative diseases, and maybe eventually, you know, allow humans to merge with computers. But Kat, you've written a book about the brain. How feasible is this? What's the challenge here? I mean, I think it's really exciting if we can find ways to, um, you know, I love anything to do with brain computer interfaces because there are so many challenges as you mentioned you know with um spinal cord injuries and things like that but i think the challenge here is as you say if you're trying to 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 read and write brain signals that's the issue so pigs have a highly packed that the snouts are packed with um touch receptors and so you know yeah you can read these signals coming into the brain that's one thing but then trying to create the signals that you can send into the brain to to control things like, you know, 
memories or emotions or you know the, the brain is so complex so trying to to create those things in the brain is going to be a lot harder than reading a signal from from an area of the body that is highly packed with, with receptors yeah it, we did speak on the show a few months ago about an ai that's been taught to translate thoughts into sentences uh, so the idea there is that um, eventually people who've uh, lost the ability to speak uh, will be able to regain it um, and the system worked by measuring brain signals as people spoke and the algorithm got to learn what signals were associated with different words. So that worked on a very limited vocab. Um, but the other thing to think about is that you can have um, non-invasive technology that can read brain signals. So you can have skull caps on the brain that can can interpret what the, what the brain is doing and perhaps translate that. But what Elon Musk is doing here is implanting something into the brain. So that's quite different. Um, Joe, what do you think on this? Is it is there too much hype around this? Well, I think it's a really exciting area, but this it just feels to me a little bit like the geoengineering that it's more to do with the ego of a billionaire than actually necessarily doing good science. So personally, I just think he should leave the pigs alone. <laughs> yeah, it did upset um, a few actual scientists who you know they get their work peer reviewed and they do it all very incrementally and carefully uh, without any hype. Um, and actually, they've done a lot of the things already that Neuralink are claiming. Val, would you be happy to have one of these implanted? No, I think I'll get back to you that one in a few years' time. But but what about the safety issues and the accuracy of the thing? With treatments for people with Parkinson's, for example, scientists use deep brain stimulation. And one of the problems there is the durability of the electrodes. They can cause scarring in the brain and the electrode can move around and end up stimulating different neurons from the one it was supposed to. And that's the deep brain where the good stuff happens. This is just the surface, isn't it? So we don't know how much we'll be able to do here. Yeah, that's right. That's what um, that's what Kat was getting at, that um, this Neuralink only interacts with the surface, so it doesn't get to the good stuff deep in the brain where we have memories and mood, physical activity or desire and addiction. And also it doesn't get to the deep structures that can be affected by traumatic brain injury or stroke or locked-in syndrome. And we do already have brain-computer interfaces that can do some really cool things. So for paralysed people, they can learn to type just by thinking. And you can get up to 10 words per minute already with a brain-computer interface. So there is a lot of progress there already. OK, I've just telepathically transmitted my thoughts on Neuralink. Um, but if you didn't receive them, we'll just say, let's just say, wait and see. Um, I think everyone agrees it's interesting, but, you know, we're not going to get telepathy for a good while yet. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Kat and Joe, And thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. We'd love you to spread the word about our show. So do urge your friends and family to subscribe. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod. And you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Till next time, take care. Bye. 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 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.